Today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, we're very proud to have with us author Robert Madsen, who just came out with a book called Dutch Girl. And I'd like to give our listeners a little bit of background on that. 25 years after her passing, Audrey Hepburn remains the most beloved of all Hollywood stars. Known as much for her role as UNICEF ambassador as for films like Roman Holiday and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Several biographies have chronicled her stardom, but none has covered her intense experiences through five years of Nazi occupation in the Netherlands. According to her son, Luca Dotti, quote, the war made my mother who she was. And we'll find that out today, definitely, in this interview with Robert Matson, who has spent a lot of time in the Netherlands, who has done some excellent research on her life and uncovered a lot of things about Audrey Hepburn that have never been covered previously by biographers, which makes his book extremely fascinating and add that to the talent he has for writing live-action scenes. And the book is a must-read, that much I can tell you. The war years also brought triumphs as Audrey became Arnhem's most famous young ballerina. Audrey's own reminiscences, new interviews with people who knew her in the war, wartime diaries, and research in classified Dutch archives shed light on the riveting, untold story of Audrey Hepburn under fire in World War II. Robert Madsen is the award-winning author of Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe, Fireball, Carol Lombard and the Mystery of Flight 3, and five other books. He has appeared on national broadcast programs, and his byline has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. Robert Madsen, welcome to the show today. It's great to have you with us. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm very glad to be here. A good place to start is to tell us a little bit about yourself and also why you decided to write this book. What was your motivation? I was in Arnhem in the Netherlands, and I was uh, doing research on the Jimmy Stewart book. I was following the course of one of his airmen who had been shot down over Holland and was taken in by the Dutch resistance and was making his way down through the country. And I based my operation in Arnhem for a few days, and I learned that Audrey Hepburn had spent the war there as a teenager, and I thought, ooh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, let me read more about that. And then I tried to, and, and I couldn't find very much for a lot of really great reasons, as it turned out. Um, and I thought, if ever there was a topic for a book, this is it. And that started me on my way. Let's start with the life of Audrey Hepburn. How, where did she grow up, and how did she grow up, and what were her goals as a young girl? Audrey was born in Belgium in 1929 to a Dutch aristocratic mother from a very prominent family, and this sort of ne'er-do-well, shifty character father who was English but was Slovakian in ancestry. And they had this uh, his name was Joseph Rustin, and her name, Audrey's mother, was Ella von Heemstra. And they had a very tempestuous relationship that produced Audrey as the only child. Um, Audrey had two older half-brothers, so she spent her earliest years in Belgium. Then uh, her mother spent a lot of time in the Netherlands, and that's how Audrey ended up in Arnhem spending time in Arnhem and Osterbeck and this little town of Velp next to Arnhem. After the divorce that was inevitable between Joseph Rustin and Ella von Heemstra, uh, Audrey was sent off to England to be schooled there, ostensibly because with the divorce, Joseph moved to England. 
and Audrey wanted to be sort of on the same island. And so she spent like four years in England being schooled in the Kent countryside. Then war came and Hitler invaded Poland and Audrey's mother, Ella, decided that Audrey should be returned to the Netherlands where it would be safe and neutral because in the Great War, World War I, the, it, Holland had been neutral. And so, of course, Hitler would keep it neutral this time too. And so Audrey returned to the Netherlands where Ella von Heemstra had set up shop with her aristocratic family in Arnhem uh, just in time for the occupation of the Netherlands because Hitler had other plans. During her time in England, Audrey took up a love of ballet. She started to take ballet lessons once a week. And this is as a nine and 10 year old girl. Then she returns to the Netherlands and keeps that interest. And so you asked, you know, what were her ambitions? She wanted to be a ballerina. And once she was ensconced in Arnhem, she took professional ballet lessons regularly. And from nowhere, from this really late start at nine or 10 years old, she pretty fast became Arnhem's most famous ballerina and just aimed this terrific work ethic at this one thing. She never liked school. She never liked much of anything, but she loved to dance. And so, you know, as the war began, the occupation of the Netherlands began, she was a dancer. One thing that really impressed me about your book, and there were many, many things, was how you described her living in Holland and her living in Arnhem and how the people in Arnhem once the Germans occupied Holland, felt that they would be relatively safe because the Nazis kind of led them on to believe that, as in World War I, that they wouldn't be attacking Holland, that they didn't need to. But really, that turned out to be a ruse. When did that all start to become very, very apparent to her family? And who was her family at that time? And how, was her, how were her parents connected with the Nazi party? The von Heemstrus were one of the really the founding families of the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands came into existence as a modern country at the beginning of the 19th century. And from that point on, there were von Heemsters involved in government and politics and uh, noble charities. You no, know, I mean, so this was a very well-to-do family, like a very, a very well-known family, if not a rich family. And so that's the von Heemsters. And Ella was like the black sheep daughter of the latest generation of von Heemstras. And in marrying Joseph Rustin, she got herself involved with a an actual fascist who loved Hitler. And so Ella von Heemstra was drawn into the social circle of Adolf Hitler and his acolytes in Berlin and Munich and Nuremberg. And I begin the book there with Ella von Heemstra, Audrey's mother, meeting Hitler at the Brownest House in Munich because where else would you start the book? I mean, for crying out loud, here she is shaking Hitler's hand in 1935 as the world is starting down this dark path. And Ella continued her Nazi sympathies even after the occupation of the Netherlands began. Joseph Rustin, after the divorce that I talked about a little bit ago, ran off and became a Nazi agent, like a full-fledged Nazi agent who went around documenting terrain in England and, you know, what were the important communication systems and the important roads and the important towns. And so he was he was like a genuinely bad guy who would go on to spend the entire war in British prison for being a Nazi. Ella 
after a certain event, I don't like to talk about it too much because I really like people to read about it in the book. A yeah, certain but... key, key, key member of Audrey's family had a really terrible thing happen. <laughs> um, That's perfectly fine. Yeah, Ella um, changed her sympathies and became actively anti-Nazi after this certain point in the war when, when her family had a trauma. So you asked also about when things turned bad for the Dutch people. And yes, at the beginning of the war, the Germans thought of the Dutch as like Aryan cousins. You know, they, the Germans thought of them completely differently from, say, anyone to the east, the Poles, the Russians, the Soviets, who were subhuman, the Jews, subhuman. The Dutch, you know, noble culture, noble warriors, businessmen. So the, the Dutch were pretty cool until the invasion of the Soviet Union, which changed everything because that opened up this Eastern Front that needed massive amounts of men and material and, and fuel and food to feed these three German armies that moved east against uh, Stalin. And so from that point on, when the Eastern Front started to turn bad and Stalingrad happened and winter, you know, all of those things that we know about, things turned very, very bad for the Dutch people, including the von Heemstras and Audrey. What seemed to be the torch in that situation was when Dutch resistance started to become a real factor against the Germans. And the Germans would choose Dutch citizens, especially well-known ones, and, and murder them in order to retaliate. Yeah. Um, they, the Germans developed this strategy where they would round up all of the leading citizens in the entire country, and they would hold them in one place, in one camp. And we're talking a 1,000 people, and we're talking, you know, the cream of the crop of Dutch society, and hold them in this one place, all, all men, we have to say, all men. And if someone from Rotterdam did something bad, well, then we're going to shoot some hostages from Rotterdam. If somebody from Arnhem did something bad, whoop, you know, some citizens of Arnhem are going to be taken out and shot. And it was a ruthless strategy that the Dutch didn't think the Germans would follow through on. And when the Germans did follow through on it, that was that caused the resistance as much as the Germans tried to use that tactic to wipe out the resistance. It just made the Dutch dig in their heels all the more. How good a ballet dancer was Audrey? It depends on, you know, your standard. It's a, it's a sliding scale. In Arnhem, which before 1940 had been sort of like the the backwaters of Dutch culture, it, it really didn't have a, much ballet at all. In Arnhem, when they started to take ballet seriously and Audrey was on the ground floor of that, she was a great dancer for Arnhem. But if you are looking at, you know, classic ballerinas being trained in Amsterdam or London, you know, Audrey wasn't of that class just because of her late start and then because of her physical you know, limitations because she grew too tall and she didn't have the, the, the figure of a classic ballerina. But, you know, she was a, quite a creditable dancer, which she proved later in Hollywood in, in pictures like Funny Face. She made a picture in 1951 called Secret People in England that not too many people know about now. 
But she did some dancing in that, you know, she did some ballet in that, and she performed very, very well. She looks great. And so if you want to get a look at Audrey, the, the classical dancer, find Secret People. There are some scenes from it on YouTube that you can just check out pretty quick, and you'll see, you know, this was a, this was a good dancer. When she was young and, and living in Arnhem, she was so busy with her ballet and her ballet learning and her ballet schooling that she was not involved at all in the politics that her mother and others were. At what point did she make that change where all of a sudden the Nazi occupation and the politics of it all started to make an impression on her? A lot of the book is, um, is history. You know, it's the history of the Dutch under occupation. It's the history of the Nazi regime and its military and political goals. And for Audrey, the conversion into like a resistance fighter happened in 1943 when she was 14 years old. And she became involved as a voluntary aide, like a volunteer doctor's aide to this really cool doctor in the town of Velp, which is next to Arnhem, where Ella and Audrey had moved in the summer of 1942. And he was in charge of resistance in the entire town from Resistance Central, which was the hospital in Velp. And she came under his influence. And the reason that she was so susceptible to joining the resistance movement, a couple of them, she saw the dancers in Arnhem and the orchestra in Arnhem, the string quartet, was so affected by the movements against the Jews and Jews being driven into hiding. Jews no longer allowed to perform. Jews sent away to the Westerbork transit camp and then on to Auschwitz. It became a situation where um, she, couldn't, she couldn't take that anymore. And then she had to make a decision to join like the Nazi artists union because she was a ballerina who was turning 15 years old and she said no. And so she could no longer perform publicly. So the combination of the Jewish situation, the personal trauma in her own family, and then this, this push to make her join the union, all of those things led her down the path of the resistance. You have a fascinating chapter in the book. I, I believe it's called Soulmate, and that describes how Audrey had developed at least a, a psychic connection with Anne Frank. Could you go through that story for us? Could you tell us that story? Sure. Um, Anne Frank was from Amsterdam. Uh, she was originally from Germany, but her family, when Hitler came to power, moved to Amsterdam, and her father, the businessman, set up shop there. Uh, Anne was born in June of 1929 one month after Audrey. Audrey was born in May 1929. These two girls spent the war, the entire war, 60 miles apart, 100 kilometers apart. Um, Anne in hiding in Amsterdam and uh, Audrey in Arnhem and Velp. And right after the war, Audrey and her mother Ella had moved to Amsterdam so that Audrey could continue her ballet training. Arnhem had been destroyed in the Battle of Arnhem. And in this apartment building where they lived, they lived right under the editor who was working on the Anne Frank diaries. It was crazy. Uh, 
this thing hadn't even been published yet. It was just being worked on. And this editor said, Audrey, I think you might find this interesting. And this, this manuscript called Het Octorhaus. And Audrey read it and she said she was devastated because they were, you know, almost identical in age and, and ambition and coloring and everything was so similar between them. And down to the fact that both of them had been arrested by the green police, the, the Dutch Nazi police. And of course, we know what the arrest of Anfang led to, the whole family being sent to Auschwitz and then Bergen-Belsen where, where Anne died. Um, but Audrey escaped from the Green Police. They tried to take her in March of 1945. They arrested her, and they were going to send a bunch of Dutch women east to Berlin to work in, ostensibly to work in kitchens, which would have put Audrey in Berlin when the Russians arrived. And you know how that might have gone. So um, Audrey, for her entire life, after reading Het Ochterhaus in its manuscript form, had this kinship with on Frank. And then it got weirder in the 1950s when Anne's father asked Audrey to play his daughter. He was the only one of the whole family who survived miraculously. And he found the diary in his in in the hidden rooms after at the end of the war and asked Audrey to play his daughter. And Audrey said, <laughs> you know, she simply couldn't for a variety of reasons. But um, and then that story continued into 1990 when Audrey was trying to raise money for UNICEF and came up with this idea that, well, you know, now I think I, I have the perspective and this is such a good cause. I can read some portions of the diary in a public setting with a symphony orchestra accompanying and raise money for UNICEF. And so that's how she sort of came to grips with this survivor's guilt that she had carried ever since reading the diary and put her relationship with what she called this soul sister to good use and put it to bed, you know, and right before she died, she, um, she had this positive experience with the on Frank situation. She was also asked to be in the movie, a bridge too far. Was she not about operation market garden? She was. And, uh, and there are conflicting reports on why she actually couldn't do that. And I believe the one that said that, you know, she lived through it once. Yeah. <laughs> Why yeah. would she live through it again? But there's another story that she wanted too much money. And I don't know which one is right. I, I do believe that it was that that battle was such trauma for her. And people don't realize how close she was to it, to the destruction of Arnhem, you know, first airborne and the 10,000 British paratroopers. And then that story gets pretty cool, too, because Audrey's family, the von Hamsters in Velp, actually sheltered one of the the Tommies, the Red Devils from the first airborne in their basement, in their cellar for like a week to 10 days after the battle, which had never been documented anywhere. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. That was a fascinating couple of chapters in your book, The Battle of Arnhem, and, and the whole explanation behind Operation Market Garden and what they were trying to accomplish there. And the fact that it definitely a plan with faults, and it was definitely a plan with high risks. We did a two-part episode on that 
earlier, Operation Market Garden, and we got some interviews uh, from some, some of the U.S. Uh, soldiers from the 82nd and 101st who were within just miles of the Arnhem Bridge, but they were, they were tanks, there were British tanks stalled on those bridges waiting for reinforcements, and they would not move. And I remember the, the, the frustration on the part of some of the men from the 82nd as they said, come on, we'll help you, we'll go with you. But those tanks wouldn't budge, and the time was running out for Frost and his brigade in Arnhem, and they took that terrible pounding. And she's, she's in a basement within the limits of Arnhem or very, very close to it, and they're just getting pounded for a long, long time. Her, it must have been terrifying. Could you just describe a little bit of that? Yeah, um, this was definitely a half-baked plan by Montgomery to do this. Um, it was daring, you know. I I don't I don't fault him for it, but um, she spent the invasion uh, by the first airborne and that parachute drop started off basically nine months of terror for Audrey and her family because they were in Velp, which was it's right at the edge of Arnhem, so you can walk from where her uh, villa was, the von Hamster villa. You can walk easily in an hour to central Arnhem where the battle took place. If you get on a, um, you know, a tram, you can take the ride in 10 minutes. It's that close. And they were driven to the cellar by not only the number of Germans who were pouring through Velp to get to the action. You know, the Tiger tanks were parked in front of her house, for crying out loud. Uh, and then the air attacks, the strafing that began during the battle, it continued almost nonstop for months. So yeah, uh, Arnhem was destroyed. The a lot of the Red Devil paratroopers were driven into hiding. Some of them in Velp, and then it got really bad. Um, then there were air attacks pretty much constantly till the end of the war. I'd like to give our listeners a little sample of just how well written this book is. And would you mind if I gave them a little sample from the chapter you have called First Cigarette, and it's about the liberation of Arnhem? Sure, that sounds great. What happened next became one of her favorite stories to tell in interviews for the remainder of her life. The four Van Heemstras tiptoed up to the steps from the cellar to the first floor of the Buchenhof, and then dared to poke their heads into the morning air. Instead of the jaunty Tommies she remembered from the battle for Arnhem, she ventured out to a horrifying moment facing soldiers pulling back bolts on Sten guns and ready for a fight, their eyes glittering and their guns pointed straight at me, she said. She blurted out some words in elegant English, and the instant they heard me speak their own language, they let out a great yell. One of them bellowed, Not only have we liberated a town, we've liberated an English girl. For the first time in five years, the men with the guns weren't German. It was the moment the people of Velp had expected 211 agonizing days earlier on the 17th of September when British airborne parachutes had filled the air. Liberation, they had shouted expectantly on that bright autumn Sunday, only to have the dream shattered that day. This time the soldiers looked like Tommies and wore their uniforms, including some not in helmets, but in those lovely red berets. Their shoulder patches did not show a pegasus in white on a red field. These patches showed a white polar bear. They were in fact Canadian First Army troops 
and the vehicles passing slowly on by the Rossendalsalon belonged to the 5th Canadian Armoured Division. Just a day ago, German Tigers had been parked there. The guns, the tanks, the trucks, the jeeps, and the men came rolling into town, said Aubrey. Cecil B. DeMille could not surpass the spectacle. And, and the, the book is so good because throughout, you use her quotes and other quotes to really pick up on the history. And it's so well written and it moves so well, I had trouble putting it down. It's just an excellent book, well written. And I, I, hope, our, I hope our listeners do get this book, Dutch Girl. Next question for you is, how did her World War II experiences mold her character and her future? Thank you for everything you just said. <laughs> I um, thank you for a great book. Well, thanks. I uh, I did craft it to be a page turner. You know, I, I think that really helps to to give some um, to set up some setup in at the end of each chapter to sort of compel you to read a little bit more. You know, don't go to bed. Read a little bit more. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like it worked, and I appreciate. Yeah, you that nailed time. it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So uh, what the war did for her, and this is according to Luca Dotti, uh, her son, it gave her life lessons that she passed on to him. He told me that when his mother wanted to teach him something about life, she never used her Hollywood career because he was born after, pretty much after her Hollywood career was complete, at least her starring career was completed by the time that Luca was born in 1970. Um, he said that she always went back in time to the war to, to teach him things. And it really, um, Audrey remained at heart a Dutch girl. She really did. The Dutch are very practical people. They're very humble people. They're, they're quiet. She was an introvert and she stayed one. And the biggest impact the war had on her was she had seen so much suffering by children. And, it's, and it, she was, you know, what, 10 years old when the occupation began, but she was 14 and 15 years old. She turned 16 right after Liberation Day in Velp. She witnessed personally, and I talked to some of the children who had grown up and, and were the elder statesmen of, of the Netherlands who she had come into contact with as children who had lost parents, you know, in bombing attacks and whatever. And she saw the suffering of these kids in Velp and Arnhem and it made her, it drove her to make the world a better place for children in wartime situations. And so not only did she pass on lessons to her own sons about war, what it's really like, the cost, what's really important. She also used it to um, use her experiences to go into war-torn situations like Somalia, for example, the last, the last of her UNICEF trips, and save what children she could, make their lives better for a day or a week, give them food, give them enough food to keep them alive. You know, all of these things. And, and this is one of the reasons that Audrey is, you know, revered, will always be revered, will be timeless because of the way she made the war and what she went through 
into this positive thing. You know, let's let's help. Let's help. Her legacy is is continuing today through the Audrey Hepburn Children's Fund, for example, which her sons run. And UNICEF goes on, and largely in her memory, largely driven by her years there. So I mean, like her wartime experience became a driver for the entire world, I think. As a Hepburn biographer in Holland, in Arnhem, and researching the past, I believe you were, you've been the only biographer that actually went to Holland to research that past. What were some of your greatest finds when you went over there and the greatest contacts you made? Wow, there are so many. Personally, as a World War II guy, um, to be in the German command bunker at Dalen Air Base in this vintage, haunted, big, giant concrete structure that they tried to blow up and couldn't. They couldn't destroy it, so it still sits there, and it's like three stories tall. To be able to roam around inside there and, and see German commands on the walls, uh, that was pretty cool. To see at Dalen Air Base... One of the things the Germans did that was very clever was that they disguised their hangars as Dutch farmhouses. And I was in one of them that's still painted in these, you know, it, it looks from the air like a farmhouse, but it's a hangar. And I was in there and with the German commands on the walls. And, and to be able to follow the World War II trail of history was incredible. Um, to be in the Dutch archives and visit the secret police files that were kept on Ella von Heemstra, Audrey's mother, at The Hague, and just roam through those documents and see what the case was against Ella. And that was very cool. And the, the Gelder's archive in Arnhem had terrific information on the family. And, and to be able to, to look at and hold in my hand, you know, German documents and, and other documents related to the family, that was, that's powerful stuff going to the execution site of some high-ranking Dutch civilians who were murdered. It's now a national shrine in, in the Netherlands. Unfortunately, as the generations pass, fewer and fewer people remember these Dutchmen who were gunned down by the Nazis. And, and that's one thing that I really want Dutch Girl to do in its Dutch edition, which will be out in September in time for the battle anniversary is to reconnect the Dutch with their own history. And, and I think if anything, anything comes out of this book, that's what I would like because the Dutch people are so incredible. And I met and I interviewed so many, they're like family now, some of them, and they can't wait for me to go back in September um, for the launch of the Dutch edition. So um, that, that entire Dutch experience for my wife and I was just, you know, Incredible. I found a chestnut mentioned here, and I wondered if you could expand on it a little bit. It's one of those things that as, as an author or as a history podcaster you find, and you find just a brief mention of it, and you say, oh, we've got a story there. And this one was about a group of university students that were called Legueur. It's G-U-E-U-X. How do you pronounce that? Well, the, the, you got me. Yeah, I think that's, is that French? I don't even know. It looks like Le Guerre, and they they were a secret group that killed Nazis one by one and then left the bodies down in the canal. And apparently they got away with it. You had mentioned it uh, just a, as a, a brief line in the book, 
And I was wondering if you knew anything more about them. You know, that's not something that I discovered. That's something Audrey talked about. When she, she would be asked about her resistance work. And because she was Audrey, uh, she would downplay whatever she did. But she said, you know, if you want to talk about real heroes, it's these group of college guys, you know, who did this thing. So you'd have to ask Audrey for the details on that because I, I, uh, I just used the quote because it was so typically Audrey to be self-effacing about her own activities in the war. The interviewers would try to drag information out of Audrey about the war, and she would go along with for a little bit, but always in the back of her mind, she was worried that somehow her mother's Nazi connection would come out, her father's Nazi connection, and she did not want to go there. That was her big secret. She was always afraid that her mother was going to be exposed as a Nazi. Um, Ella von Heemstra did a lot after the war to cover her tracks as best she could about her early Nazi activities and enthusiasm. Um, and, and this was like a chain around Audrey's neck, you know, like an anchor that she dragged around through her entire career. And, and I think it's one of the reasons that she was just fine giving up her career because no longer did she have to worry about her mother's past being exposed. How did she make the connection with Hollywood? How was she discovered? Well, Audrey had quite a lucky streak. Um, she never wanted to be an actress. She just wanted to be a ballerina her whole life. If you asked her in 1960 or 1970 or 1980 or 1990, you know, what do you consider yourself? You know, a great actress, Academy Award winning actress? And she, she would say, no, I, I'm a dancer. Um, but although she wanted to be a dancer, she kept getting that face, kept getting her, you know, print work as a model for suntan lotion or whatever. Um, and that would lead to little bit parts on television. You know, it was the dawn of television in England, like it was in the United States in the late 1940s. So she'd be on TV. And then that would get her Oh, look at that girl. She's got an interesting face. It got her a, a walk on in a movie and then another one. And she would get a line or two. She was on in a movie with Alec Guinness, Lavender Hill Mob, I think. And she had she played a cigarette girl and had a line. I might have that wrong because she did all these little appearances. But then she got discovered um, for this secret people thing that I talked about before. And then she made the Monte Monte Carlo Baby was one title of this thing she did. And while she was at Monte Carlo filming in a hotel, the author Colette, the French writer Colette, who was this elderly woman in a wheelchair, spotted her and said, you must play Gigi on Broadway. There was going to be a production. And son of a gun, all of a sudden, Audrey Hepburn is shipped. This, this young girl with no ambition to be an actress and just wanted to dance is shipped to New York to be on Broadway as Gigi. <laughs> and and as that was happening, then she was cast in Roman Holiday in Hollywood. And suddenly she is signed by Paramount Pictures. So, I mean, like, it's something, you know, a million girls dream about and something that happened to Audrey and she never wanted it. But it was, you know, it was a living that she could she could support her mother. She could support herself. And that that's the way it happened. I would imagine you've seen a few of her movies in, in researching her book. Do you have a favorite? I think Roman Holiday is awesome. I do. Uh, she's so likable in it. 
she plays a princess, which is kind of typecasting because she does have this European aristocratic background that comes through in that role. Um, Secret People is the other one. Then the 1951 picture I, I talk about, which is this crazy, dark drama, political thriller, really. And she plays the the little sister of this woman who's caught up in espionage and intrigue. And that's a another one that it's just so interesting to see Audrey at like age 19 or 20 acting using her instincts, just instinct that got her through the war. You know, they kept her alive in the war. Now she's using the same instinct to be an actress when she's had no formal training. Uh, so if you're an Audrey fan, I think those two pictures made within a couple years of each other are the ones to see. Are there any important anecdotes or stories you would like to add that I could, that I could go back and plug in throughout? Tell me a little bit about your book that you did, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe. The book Mission that I wrote before Dutch Girl was an idea suggested to me because there was this dark part of Jimmy Stewart's timeline that he wouldn't talk about, which was basically his combat career as a bomber pilot in the war. And initially I thought, you know what, I can't tell that story because he didn't tell that story. What am I supposed to use? Like Audrey gave about five or 6,000 words of quotes about the war. And that was, as you mentioned, you know, I, I used them throughout and provided the context of what she was talking about. But, but Jim never talked about any of that. So how can I write a book about it? But, um, so then I thought, well, I've got this researcher in DC and she does a lot of work in the military archives. And if she can find the mission reports for Jim's missions, I think I could maybe have a chance at doing a book. And so I sent her in. I had gotten his personnel file from the archives in St. Louis, and I had a list of all of his missions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And I gave this to her, and it had his bomb group and his squadron and uh, all of these dates and missions. And like within a day or two, she started feeding me the combat mission reports from Jim's missions. And they were incredible. I mean, I had his his takeoff time, his his heading, the cloud cover, the bomb load, who was on the plane, where they encountered flak, where they encountered fighters, when they dropped bombs, how effective the bomb drop was, who was hit on the mission, who went down, who came back. I had it all. And I thought, wow, you know, not only did I have all of that information, but then I started to find diaries. I found some flyers that were still alive that I could talk to. They put me in touch with other flyers. And pretty soon I just had this this narrative that nobody expected. <laughs> Including that, you. you know, <laughs> they, oh, absolutely. Including me. That just recreated almost minute by minute the 20 missions that this guy flew, including, you know, one when his the the flight deck of his plane 
was hit by an 88 shell and blew a hole between his feet over Gotha, Germany. And he had to make it all the way back in this crippled plane that cracked in half when he landed. I mean, come on. You know, and that was one, his last mission, which I think is, is just incredible, is when he was leading a raid against a jet fighter base in Achmer, Germany. And what the stakes were then, because if the ME-262 speed bombers, Hitler called them, got off the ground, they could have decimated his formation of B-24s. And this was right near the end of the war. It was his last mission for a number of reasons, because he, he kind of cracked up a couple of times just because of the intensity of what he was doing. But some of the missions, like that one and, and some others, are just are just amazing history. And to to think that the the guy that we know from It's a Wonderful Life and Shenandoah and the Naked Spur and Vertigo, that he went through what he went through is it, you have to read it to believe it. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, when he came back from World War Two, he had been he had been in acting, obviously, before he left. And then when he came back, he was kind of reticent to get back into it because what he had gone through really changed him. And he felt that he'd lost his acting ability. But finally, his friends talked him into it, and uh, he went back into acting, and he was bigger than ever. But apparently, he was quite a man, honest, um, true to his friends, and uh, well-respected by everyone in and out of the motion picture industry. Yeah, he was quite a character. Um, An intense loner, um, very private person, kind of closed off, even if you were one of his best friends, you really didn't know this guy. You know, he was that private of a person. Henry Fonda was his best friend for his entire life and still didn't really know the guy. You know, his wife didn't really know the guy. <laughs> he was that private. Um, but but yeah, I mean, he he had buried in deep in his psyche this this entire wartime experience brought PTSD back with him did consider giving up acting because he had aged so badly in service. So, yeah, it's quite a story. Before we close, I wanted to read this quote from Hepburn's younger son, Luca Dotti, who we mentioned early on in the show. He wrote about you. When my mother talked about herself and what life taught her, Hollywood was the missing guest. Instead of naming famed Beverly Hills locations, She gave us obscure and sometimes unpronounceable Dutch ones. Red carpet recollections were replaced by Second World War episodes that she was able to transform into children's tales. We knew we were missing the complete story of her life in the war until Robert Matson wrote to me introducing himself and his book, Dutch Girl. I now understand why the words good and evil, love and mercy, were so fundamental in her own narrative, why she was open about certain facts, and why she kept so many others in a secluded area of her being. Thank you, Robert Matson. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> that's about as good as it gets. Well, I, um, I formed quite a friendship with Luca as we worked together. I had a complete manuscript that I sent him, and he is the family historian and he read it and he said he had to keep putting it down and cry you know because it, there was so much new information and he had no idea how intense the wartime experience of his mother was 
So, I mean, like, I feel like I have a brother. I, I never had a brother. I only had sisters, but now I have Luca, and that's, um, that's another wonderful thing that came out of this uh, project. Well, we sure want to thank you for the time you spent with us today, and I hope all our listeners go out and get a copy of Dutch Girl. Absolutely fantastic read. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, and I've enjoyed this uh, talk with you very much, and I want to thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. Anytime. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, the easiest email is simply rmatson at hotmail.com. What's your next project? Do you have anything going right now? Everybody asks, and Audrey is a tough act to follow. I need to find something that that gets me going like Mission did and then Dutch Girl did. So, you know, stand, stay tuned, and maybe I'll have something soon. So Terrific. thanks, and good luck with your book sales. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. okay bye-bye. Now, that was an interesting interview, 1001 listeners, especially for those of you who have ever seen Audrey Hepburn act. And if you're a fan of old movies like I am, you've probably seen Roman Holiday or Breakfast at Tiffany's. What you may not know is that Audrey Hepburn was ranked by the American Film Institute as the third greatest female screen legend in Golden Age Hollywood and was inducted into the International Best Dressed List Hall of Fame. On my daughter's list, Audrey's number one, and I won't challenge that. For all of you who are aware of UNICEF, and all that organization has done and continues to do worldwide for children. Many of you know that Audrey Hepburn was a tireless spokesperson for that organization for decades, working in some of the poorest communities in Africa, South America, and Asia herself between 1988 and 1992. This book, Dutch Girl, by Robert Matson, and its very moving narrative that details her experiences actually seeing truckloads of Jewish children being removed from her town, explains the motivation she had to want to help children, and fills in the part of her life that all other stories about her miss. And that was her World War II experience, which molded the rest of her life. On another tack, we need new reviews at 1001 Heroes, and a few kind words about this episode would be greatly appreciated, as well as jumping over to Amazon and getting Dutch Girl, which you will enjoy and want to share with friends. And a huge thanks to all our new Patreon supporters who have been coming aboard at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. I know you're enjoying the steady diet of Best of 1001, mostly ad-free, and our new Prime Cuts episodes for the $2.99 a month and up members. Be sure to join our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes as well. We play special updates about what's going on there at that page, and new members are always welcome. For you newbies to Facebook groups, if you see closed group, that only means that your posts are not made public. It doesn't mean you can't get in. All of you are welcome, always. Last, here are some new reviews at 1001heroes from our Apple Podcast listeners. I do get other reviews at places like Messenger and Podbean and Stitcher and Gmail, but I'm never able to collate them. It just takes too much time. Those are and always have been appreciated very much as well. Here are some reviews gathered through Apple Podcast. This one titled, Jack Dempsey, 5 stars. Nice stuff. That one from Market Pop via Apple Podcast US. And this one, the Best History Podcast, five stars. 1001 is the best history podcast I have found. 
I've been listening for over three years, and each episode is meticulously researched and presented with excellent production value. On top of all that, John is a great storyteller. Thank you. Thanks for all your hard work, John. Much appreciated. That one from Max C. 1987, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Felt I Was There. Five stars. I feel like I dropped into some time in history. I love the five-part series on the Titanic. I thought I'd read every story and seen every movie, but I missed one. I felt the fear that the passengers must have felt. The interview with the author of the book on the Titanic was a new point of view as well. I've been listening for a year now. That one from Froststorm, 1017, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, very well done, five stars. This is good stories that are well told. A must add to your podcast stream. That one from Spotted Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, great podcast. I love listening to this podcast. I really love hearing the laughter in your voice, especially when you try to suppress it. That makes me smile. Thank you for your hard work. Ambeck22, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Ambeck, I just wanted you to know, I'm glad it shows that I really enjoy doing this. I really enjoy doing what I do very much. And I enjoy sharing with all of you. And when I get feedback from you guys, it just makes my day. So I appreciate your joining our Facebook group. I appreciate your coming on to Patreon. And I appreciate the reviews that all of you send so much. Because it shows me that you're enjoying what I'm creating here as much as I do. It's a great relationship, and I hope it continues a long time. We've still got a long way to go to get to 1,001. We just passed uh, We just passed 500, so we've got a ways to go. And then, of course, when we get to 1,001, it's very likely I'll change it to 2,001. And, we, <laughs> and we'll move on from there. Everyone take care, stay safe, and we'll be back sooner than you think. Bye.